Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education purposes only, not to diagnose anything on your eye. Each week, uh, we'll. Oh, what am I doing? Sorry. It's it's okay. I can't, no. <laughs> so we're an ophthalmology resident and fellow who figured reviewing for the boards, OCAPS, or clinic is better when you don't have to do it alone. Each week we review a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. Now it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> this week, this week we're doing sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis. And, um, just leading into it, what the heck is sarcoidosis? It's technical definition is any disease where there's a systemic non-caseating granulomatous process ongoing, which uh, means at some point people s- sliced pieces of people out, put them on slides, and found granulomas that weren't caseating on histose path. But that means it probably has multiple uh, manifestations in the body, certainly those in the eye as well, and that's what we'll talk about today. So, so basically, it's a granulomatous disease that's not TB. You know, that's kind of like how, it's, <laughs> like, even if it's not casein, it's not TB. But what causes it? Does anybody know? Like, actually, does anyone know? I, I, I don't know what causes it. Nobody knows. That's the long and short of it. My BCSE did mention that there was this kind of case control study that suggested there might be this relationship with a lot of microbe-rich environments is what they called it. Um, I guess that just means if you're in a germy place, watch out, but it seems like a weak link. Other studies said maybe there is a link to mycobacteria and propionibacteria too, but really there's nothing that's slam-dunk convincing yet. So just keep it as a question mark in your head as far as where does the tooth, where does the sarcoidosis fairy come from? Nobody knows. Right. And, you know, there's all that stuff we learned about uh, about sarcoidosis for step one and, you know, in medical school and stuff. We won't go, this isn't going to be a systemic sarcoidosis review episode about, you know, getting into like race predilection and such. We are going to focus on the signs of ocular sarcoid. Kind of the, the most common manifestations of ocular sarcoid are actually granulomas on the eyelid or super subconjunctival granulomas. That means you have to avert the lid to find them. And they can also get dry eye from lacrimal gland infiltration. You know, sarcoid loves to infiltrate glands and, you know, lymph tissue in the lacrimal gland is not an exception. So they can, you know, present with dry eye. Just as a side note, you know, Maybe not at the institution that Andrew and I did residency at, but you know, I know that sometimes a consult for biopsy of the eye to help establish a diagnosis of sarcoidosis um, is requested. The and you know, I think the reason it's requested is because the eye is very accessible, you know, compared to a lung biopsy. Uh, so I, I get it. The problem is that the yield of a biopsy of the eye is low unless there's an actual visible granuloma. So, you know, that's, at least at our institution, that's that's how we kind of approach it. Unless there's an actual identifiable granuloma, we won't biopsy. You're not just going to biopsy random conjunctiva and hope that there's some sarcoid in there. Fair point. Yeah. Inside the uh, intraocularly, sarcoid can also have uh, acute and chronic versions of anterior uveitis. And like we'd said before in our acute anterior uveitis episode, there are granulomatous versions of it and non-granulomatous. As you'd expect, sarcoidosis being a granulomatous disease, 
has granulomatous anterior uveitis, and you'll expect then to see mutton fat, keratic precipitates, or even iris nodules. And the iris nodules, this is another fun aspect that's unique to sarcoid. You'll see kind of in the literature and the test prep review stuff, three different versions, all with their own eponyms. There's the kepi iris nodule, that's spelled the same way as the kepi gonio lens, but uh, maybe only we know about that. The K-O-E-P-P-E. And then there's the Busaka iris nodules and Berlin iris nodules. The difference between all of these is where they can be generally found on the iris, whether it's more like just around the pupillary margin, more, more so mid-peripherally, or more in the peripheral iris. Helpfully, they do arrange themselves in an alphabetical order, Kepi, Basaka, Berlin, but you know that only helped me insofar as I couldn't remember in which order did they come. Was it Berlin nodules on the periphery or was it Kepi um, nodules on the periphery? So the way I kind of remember it, K for Kepi, you can think of it as being on the curb of the iris, and I'm be playing fast and loose with my C's and K's here, I know. But uh, the kepi nodules are the ones that are right at the pupillary margin. So they're the ones you have to look for most in the center. That means on the other side of the alphabet, kepi, basaka, berlin, the berlin iris nodules are the ones farther away at the periphery of the iris, closer to the angle. Um, another maybe memory tool you can use to remember that kepi nodules are more in the center. Uh, the other K finding you look for kind of in the middle of the visual axis, not related to anything here at all, but Krukenberg spindles you look for usually right in the center of the cornea, around in that vicinity at the middle of the pupil, pupil margin, you'd find the other K thing for Kepi. I don't know which one you prefer to use. <laughs> I like both um, of them equally. I love them like, <laughs> like they're my children. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Wonderfully deformed children, yes. Yes, wonderfully granulomatous children, um, and and like Andrew mentioned, they so nodules can appear in the trabecular meshwork, and we call those Berlin nodules. And they can also present as having peripheral anterior synechiae, you know, chronic inflammation causing these um, this essentially scar tissue in the um, in the angle. They can also present as having intermediate or posterior uveitis. Remember, intermediate uveitis typically presents as a string of pearls or pearls on a string. So it can be these linear strands of vitreous cells that can be pretty far peripheral. So definitely look very far peripherally. And if you need to, you can do scleral depression. So these clumps of cells in a line, in a string. And just one comment on nomenclature, intermediate uveitis would be called parasplenitis if it was an idiopathic cause. But in this case, it's we know there's sarcoidosis, that's what we're talking about, so it's technically not called parasplenitis, it's intermediate uveitis. Yeah, if it's also not clear, we're going anterior to posterior to hope you remember, <laughs> so that wasn't clear. Okay, yeah. let's keep going back. So other manifestations then posteriorly of this posterior uveitis, you'd see periphlebitis in your, which is really just inflammation around your retinal veins. This can either be like a nodular looking periphlebitis or a segmental periphlebitis, and it might have what's often described as, you know, candle wax dripping appearance. It might even, um, but more 
to the nodular possibility, those nodules could look just like irregular areas of granulation around these venules. You might also even see retinal macroaneurysms in these eyes too. I just wanted to mention with the phlebitis aspect too, um, I don't, there's like one single table in the BCSC that's actually really high yield where it gives a differential diagnosis of things that present just with venular inflammation, which would be phlebitis, things that present with just arterial, retinal arterial inflammation, which would be arteritis, and then a differential of things that have both arteritis and phlebitis. The uh, primarily just phlebitis differential category has a host of things, including sarcoidosis, and the other ones are birdshot, adamantiades, bichettes, HIV, multiple sclerosis, and Eels disease. Um, one wonderful mnemonic that actually Kyle Kovacs, our, who we've had him on air before, our previous chief, gave was anything that where you're seeing mostly phlebitis, you can remember with the acronym BASHME, B-A-S-H-M-E, B for birdshot, A for adamantiades bichettes, you have to remember the adamantiades in that sense, S for sarcoidosis, H for HIV, M for multiple sclerosis, and E for eels. Um, yeah, I've tried making mnemonics as good as that for the others and i i they're just ridiculous i don't think they're gonna work for well, the rest of them so well we'll, well we'll like let that one simmer for the next time we talk about <laughs> arteritis or, or a combination but yeah anything i missed there ben no i love it okay so let's keep going further back so um now we can talk about manifestations in the optic disc or choroid and those manifestations are granulomas so you can see what they look like is kind of um yellow pretty sharply demarcated lesions that either in the choroid or in or around the optic disc often you don't have to do much about these i mean they can be a sign that there was inflammation or you know a granuloma in the area it is important, though, to even though if someone has a history of sarcoid and you find this, you can't just say, oh, it's just sarcoid. You have to at least consider other differentials of uh, choroidal or optic disc granulomas, which includes um, other infectious causes and neoplastic causes. So you should think about those as well. But maybe we'll do a granuloma episode later, talk about all of those different things. And then beyond the anterior optic disc, what else is there? Deeper into the optic nerve itself, that nerve can be infiltrated, which uh, would manifest as, you know, optic neuritis. And you can also have problems with uh, the granulomas affecting your cranial nerves. So you can have cranial nerve palsies and therefore extraocular motility issues too. Um, there's like a couple other presentations where uh, the granulomas pop up and affect multiple things, especially relating to uh, different cr cranial nerves, I think. Can you think of a couple of these syndromes, Ben, that combine not just eye findings, but other things too? Yeah, one of them is Herefort syndrome. In that one, the, we, we talked about how the lacrimal gland can become infiltrated. Here, the parotid gland becomes infiltrated. And how that can affect things is, um, remember, the seventh nerve runs through the parotid gland. So you can get a seventh nerve palsy with the parotitis, and then they can get the classic anterior uveitis with sarcoidosis with mutton fat keratitis. So, um, yeah, that's Herefort's syndrome. Mm. Another one is a Lofgren syndrome, where you have joint issues with febrile arthropathies, erythema nodosum. Um, you also can have problems in 
in the pulmonary system with hilar, bilateral hilar adenopathy. And to top it off, your good old acute iritis, um, just good to know about Lofgren syndrome is it responds very well to steroids, and there's generally a good prognosis for it. And Herefords and Lofgrens are pretty much the only two epidemic versions of sarcoidosis uh, that involve the eyes. There's a bunch of others too, but because they don't involve the eyes, we won't review them in this episode. One right. other sort of syndromic thing that I'll mention offhand, because this has come up a couple of times, is if you have a patient with both optic nerve enhancements, aka optic neuritis, and involvement or inflammation of the pituitary stalk or something else in that, you know, hypothalamic pituitary axis, then that's probably actually sarcoid. Sarcoid also loves to affect the pituitary or the HPA axis. So if you have that in combination with a typical optic neuritis, then you can view it as highly likely to be sarcoidosis. So, you, so Andrew, let's say I see someone with, uh, you know, anterior uveitis and like, you know, maybe like a kepi nodule. I can just diagnose them as sarcoid and walk away, right? Drop the mic, the sarcoid um, mic. No, you've just found that there's a granulomatous process that's affecting the eyes, but, uh, you know, like could be tuberculosis too. That could even be uh, Blau syndrome or juvenile JIA. Uh, so, as we mentioned, we'll probably do a full like differential episode on granulomatous problems. But you do have to try to figure out that this isn't something else. Um, we've already talked a little bit about how biopsies can be useful, but aren't that necessarily helpful all the time. What are some other things that you'd have to include in your due diligence, Ben? Yeah, so in general, a workup for sarcoidosis, to, if you know, you're trying to evaluate to see if it is sarcoidosis, includes a, um, a CT or a chest X-ray for hilar lymphadenopathy. That's a thing that we hopefully remember from our general medical school um, border view. So, you know, if you're trying to decide in the emergency room, you know, doing an initial workup, a chest X-ray is positive in 90% of patients at some point in their disease course, but not necessarily through their entire disease course. But a, a CT is much more sensitive. So you could, you know, if there's resource limitation, consider a chest x-ray. But, um, you know, CT is kind of needed to definitively rule in or rule out a hyaluronic lymphadenopathy. There's also yeah. a, um, yeah, sorry. Um, there's also um, a couple lab tests that we, you know, probably also remember from general medical board review, which includes ACE, lysozyme, and LFTs. These aren't always super hopeful or sensitive. You can get them just so it can add to the picture, but you shouldn't consider any of them ruling in or definitively ruling out sarcoidosis. ACE can definitely be perturbed for a bunch of different reasons. For example, in children, ACE levels are in general higher. Um, in my attempt at a lit review on PubMed, there's no, like, I couldn't find a definitive reference value for a sarcoid in children, so just keep that in mind in general. And it can be masked by ACE inhibitors. Okay, right, yeah. so now we've diagnosed them with sarcoidosis. Now we can walk away, right, Andrew? Mm, and you can walk away as long as you've, like, set up a sprinkler system with steroid drops to assault their eyes at all times. Uh -huh. um, that was a weird way of describing it. A little that. bit, but you can, you know, you can try to patent it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Just as long, basically the point is you have to treat with intense steroid treatment because they're essentially a uveitic case for you. You even 
could potentially consider subconjunctival triamcinolone if the posterior segment is involved. That's been considered sometimes. But if this is something where it's taking a long time, the patient is having a hard time weeding off of the steroids, but you're thinking about the potential for cataracts and steroid response glaucoma, and you're getting nervous about keeping them on steroids for this long, there's also a definite role for immunomodulatory therapy, at which point you'd probably talk to your rheumatology consult. But um, among the options, and this is something that uh, I think we are expected to know, we have to know that most of the ones that we usually use are good options, including methotrexate, azathioprine, mycophenolate mofetanol, and cyclosporin, but that the TNF-alpha inhibitors are sort of a mixed bag, and that includes infliximab, adalibumab, and etanercept. In fact, of those, etanercept itself can even cause this kind of paradoxical sarcoid-like syndrome all on its own. So maybe think of the other four first before you reach for the TNF-alpha agents. TNF alpha inhibitor agents. Okay, and that's our review of sarcoidosis. To do a um, a brief review, sarcoidosis is a systemic non-casing caseating granulomatous disease. The things you should be looking for in a patient with known sarcoidosis, because remember, if you don't look for it, you won't find it. Include eyelid or subconjunctival granulomatous, which means you should avert the lid. Dry eye, which may be the most common. Acute or chronic granulomatous anterior uveitis, remember granulomatous means mutton fat, keratoprecipitates, precipitates, or iris nodules. And, and those iris nodules can be anywhere from the trabecular meshwork to the iris margin. They can get intermediate uveitis, i.e. Str- strings or pearls in the vitreous of cells. They can get phlebitis or segmental periphlebitis, which, can, which looks like candle wax drippings, which is one of the more classic things to look for. They can get optic disc or choroidal granulomas, and they can have involvement of any of the cranial nerves, including optic nerve infiltration or extraocular um, cranial nerve palsies. There are syndromes known as Herefort syndrome, which causes peritidis with anterior and a seventh nerve palsy, and Lofgren syndrome, which causes systemic erythema nodosum, febrile arthropathy, hyalur lymph- uh, lymphadenopathy, and acute iritis. Uh, you should always consider a broad differential for granulomatous uveitis. And diagnosis includes imaging of the chest as well as ACE, lysozyme, LFTs. Treat as you would anterior uveitis or posterior uveitis, whichever you, you may find, and consider immunomodulatory therapy for the long term. I'm always impressed when you speed run it like that, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I should tell people to just, just listen to the last two minutes. That's all that. <laughs> so if you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes 4 ears to the number four. And we've also got the website that uh, is eyes4ears.com, also with a number four, and a bunch of other social media things, but those are the main ones. And I promise, after boards, uh, which is just in a few weeks, we will be releasing the results of the survey raffle. So those of you who have been wondering when you are potentially going to get your money, I promise it's coming in in like a week or two. When you're going to get paid, but only one of you, because that's how raffles work. And if you'd otherwise like to support the podcast, then a like or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts is really helpful. Otherwise, for folks listening to boards, good luck. And then, uh, you know, this is probably going to come out pretty soon to the boards. I hope you have a good week. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.